Unconscious Bias Project. Hi everyone, hola a todos, Lynette here. And Alexis. Your co-hosts, both she, her, bringing you impactful stories and interviews from our communities to you and exploring how we can all support each other. And podcasting is just one branch of what we do at UBP. Find out how we can work with you and your organization to grow inclusion and support diversity by visiting our website, ubproject.org. Before we move on, we want to make sure that everybody knows that the Unconscious Bias Project is based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, and it is on unceded ancestral homeland belonging to the Ramay Tushaloni and Muwekma Ohlone peoples, some of whom speak the language Chichenyo. We encourage everyone to learn more about the Ohlone people through links on our website and in the podcast links. Hey, Lynette. Hey, Seth. How's it going? Hey, Alexis. Hey, Seth. Doing well. Hey, Alexis. Hey, Lynette. Doing great today. Well, how about you, Alexis? Doing great. I mean, you know, it's so nice because like the pandemic is over officially and nobody's getting COVID anymore, especially not in the Bay. There's totally not a spike right now. It's totally like not that a bunch of our friends and clients are getting COVID again. So, you know, like we can, we can just brush our hands and congratulate ourselves and give ourselves a collective global pat on the back, right? For those mm. not from the East Coast, that was blatant sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I apologize for those of you on the West Coast. That was a little bit of sarcasm. What, of course, Seth and Lynette and I are alluding to for those folks who are listening, pandemic is declared officially over by the United States government. But um, as we know, it's not over. We still have a lot of issues globally around the pandemic. We have a lot of issues uh, here in the US around the pandemic. And, you know, just around so much stuff. Absolutely. And really, one of the biggest issues still is um, making sure everybody's vaccinated. It's still not a thing that's happened everywhere or that everybody's done, even though we're at like, what, shot three or four or something. And it's a kind of thing that we've discussed and other many, many other uh, writers and uh, news coverage has, has talked about how something like getting COVID is really shining a light on all those health inequities and systemic inequities that we have in our society. Like people that get COVID and need to go to the hospital for it, oftentimes they might not have um, health insurance. Or one of the reasons they got COVID is that, for example, they weren't able to stay home sick or, you know, live in the Bay. You need to make some dough in order to <laughs> pay rent. The rent is too mm -hmm. damn high. And so you're going to go to work every day, no matter if it's COVID or not COVID. And, um, and you can get sick. And that's a real, you know, it'll affect your work. It'll affect your health. There's lots of people with long COVID. Um, so it's really, the pandemic has really highlighted where things go wrong in each system in each country. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. And while the U.S. Uh, may have had several companies that were building vaccines mm -hmm. for it, doesn't necessarily mean U.S. is on the same page everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
or with other countries with respect to the pandemic. Yeah. To build on that as well, uh, you know, there are several companies that are requiring their employees to go back into the office without any kind of scientific backing on why it is essential that they need to be back into the workplace when working virtually was working just fine. John Green, for instance, has been talking a lot about uh, tuberculosis and the inequities around that and um, how we have so many treatments for tuberculosis. And, you know, he says right now, it's not that people are dying of tuberculosis. They're dying of health inequity, that there are still countries out there that have almost no access to tuberculosis medication. And, you know, there's, there's a similar thing going on with COVID is if you live somewhere and you have the right insurance, then you can get Paxlovid and things like that. But, you know, if you don't have a vaccine, if you don't have Paxlovid and things like that, like you're the immediate cause of death may be COVID, but that's not the, the real cause, right? Well, all of this um, talk about the pandemic, <clears throat> and I was wondering this early on, had me thinking about vaccines, vaccine development, vaccine distribution. How do we make sure that when we're for example, say I'm a company and I manufactured, I got manufactured a whole, you know, ton of vaccines and I want to distribute them and I want to make sure that everybody has access. How does that even work? Like, especially in this case where the vaccines had to be um, refrigerated so that they would um, be able to be effective longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I imagine it's a huge logistical process, but I wasn't really sure about, you know, how people talk about it. Does anybody talk about it? Or are people thinking big picture? And it's something that I heard um, that's called cold chain, which is basically the process of figuring out how to transport things that need to stay cold across either long distances or disperse neighborhoods or different uh, geographies and things like that. And so maintaining that temperature and being able to deliver the vaccine in a timely manner um, out to all the people that need it was a really big issue at the time. So how do we listen to these needs on the ground? I think of this this term of like uh, white savior uh, and how it's this action where, you know, people swoop in and and, and try to be like the hero, uh, but not necessarily uh, listening to the needs of what the people are asking for and how that involves community and design and development. It's a tricky question. This, like, how is it that people can responsibly contribute to being, you know, part of the solution without trying to dictate the solution to others when maybe they don't know as well? Uh, luckily, we got to learn a whole lot more about that. Lynette and Seth and I, we got to learn a whole lot more about that a few months ago when we talked with Sharzad Yavari, who is. Um, an expert in a bunch of these issues. We're really lucky that we got to have that conversation. 
We are so excited to welcome Sharzad Yavari, pronounce she, her today. Woohoo! Sharzad is a public health expert with deep experience in global health. Sharzad is currently an immunization supply chain consultant with Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, supporting the COVAX initiative that provides equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines to all countries. The COVAX initiative has delivered more than 1.7 billion, I repeat, billion with a B, doses to 146 countries to date. In her previous role as a director of programs, Sharzad established and scaled an innovative vaccine cold chain program to help keep vaccines stable for longer. Installed in over 17,000 health facilities across 23 countries. She has experience in both tech and nonprofits and has traveled the world to collaborate with ministries of health and partners to solve global health issues, beginning by having real conversations with communities. We're on those conversations later. Sharzad, we are so excited to have you on as a guest today. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today. So excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Um, so to start off, uh, Sharzad, we mentioned some of your accomplishments right there just now, Lynette did. Um, but can you tell our listeners what it is you do currently and how you came to that role? Yes, happy to. So maybe actually we'll start with, um, talking a little bit about coaching because that's what I do. And I know a lot of us now mo know more about immunization and cold chain because of the COVID-19 response. But maybe I'll give a little bit of background just on vaccines, immunization, and cold chain, and then I'll get into what I do. Um, so as we know, vaccines have been one of the most effective tools for preventing infectious diseases and improving global health overall. Because when people are immunized and they don't get sick, they have more access to education, economic growth. So it really helps communities uh, to thrive and, and reach their full potential. Now, cold chain is a small part of, I would say small, because immunization supply chain is one of the most complex supply chains um, in the healthcare system. Um, cold chain is simply keeping vaccines in the right temperature. So vaccines are incredibly vulnerable. They have to be stored and transported under certain conditions. And if those conditions change at any point in what is known as the cold chain, the potency of the vaccines can be at risk. So you can imagine cold chain as transporting the vaccines um, on a bicycle, on a truck, on a boat, to storing the vaccines at a big national warehouse or a small health facility or even in an immunization outreach post in, in a community. Um, through all of these steps in the supply chain, cold chain needs to be um, thought about and it needs to be well planned so vaccines are not exposed to both freezing and heat temperatures. Um, so what I do today is I uh, lead the work on um, cold chain investments that have gone as part of this bigger initiative that is called COVAX. So as we all know, you know, now it's been a couple of years, believe it or not, right? That we have been all responding as a global community um, to COVID-19 impact, both on health and immunization has been a big part of it. Um, and thinking about this global response, there are so many different aspects, including the supply chain and basically how do we get vaccines 
procured, delivered, stored, and given to children and adults um, so they can have access and most especially really equitable access in such a difficult time that we were all going through as a global community. So when the pandemic happened, um, the access to COVID-19 tools, I'm short for ACT, Accelerator was launched. And ACT is basically a global public-private philanthropic collaboration um, to be to accelerate the development, production, and equitable rollout of COVID-19 tests, treatments, and vaccines. Um, and COVAX, which I will refer to a lot, is basically the vaccines pillar of the ACT accelerator. Um, the aim of COVAX is to bring together experts that would be governments, global health organizations, partners, manufacturers, scientists, and really all partners that are needed to come together and collaborate on research, development, and delivery of vaccines um, so everybody has access to them. Um, to date, COVAX has been able to deliver 1.7 billion vaccines to 146 uh, participating countries, and it continues to provide support in delivery of COVID-19 vaccines, given that it continues to be, you know, to date a, a challenge and will continue to be sort of this need that a lot of communities will have. Um, as we all know, the pandemic is, is still is still ongoing and um, and we know that countries may have different needs than, than what they had initially um, with the vaccines being available and more infrastructure being in place. But the delivery and thinking through distribution of vaccines and making sure that we really reach all the communities that are in need of the vaccines um, continues to be a challenge. And COVAX um, continues to provide this support. So coming back to my role now, so I'm a consultant for Gabby, the Vaccine Alliance, and Gabby helps vaccinate almost half of the world's children against deadly infectious diseases. Um, so Gavi uh, basically is um, co-leading um, the COVAX um, initiative with WHO and CEPI, um, along with support from other partners such as UNICEF and, and other partners that are uh, globally or, or locally providing support to communities. Um, and my role at Gavi has been to ensure we think through cold chain and what chain needs might have been at the beginning of the pandemic where we had no idea right what the vaccines will, will be like what temperature requirements will be there were so many unknowns and we were all trying to figure it out um, as the production was in place as you know r d was in place um, we were all trying to figure out how can we think through a process that starts putting together the infrastructure in, in the countries and, and co-designing and thinking through this process with the countries. Um, so, so my role really comes and, and still, you know, again, this is sort of an ongoing effort to ensure that cold chain is not um, a bottleneck in the countries. So wherever, you know, these communities are and whatever the cold chain infrastructure looks like, you know, some countries might might have uh, just given the ge um, geography and just where they are, their supply chain might be managed very differently. Um, they may have, you know, a big national warehouse and then they may have different layers like the province, the district, and then go to the health facilities. Some countries um, maybe are smaller or they're just set up differently in terms of healthcare infrastructure. 
and they may have a more direct delivery, you know, from the national warehouse directly to the health facility. So really learning about these ongoing and evolving needs of the countries when it comes to cold chain and what they need in terms of resources, um, that being the cold chain, that being training, that being maintenance, on how can we provide the, 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 the support that the countries need and to ensure that COVID-19 vaccine delivery um, continues to go smoothly. So that's my role. <laughs> wow, that is incredible. I, I can't even, I feel like it's hard enough to try to get five people into a Zoom call. I can't imagine considering scientists in multiple countries, supply chain people, governments, public health officials, plus the people that you're working with just to try to get everybody in the same space. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Um, you mentioned the number of countries that y'all are supporting or that are part of this uh, alliance or this group that's you know, trying to consider this on a global scale. Um, the remaining countries that aren't part of this group, do they, are most of them, they're just like, oh, we don't need this help. We've got this figured out. Or like what, what's up with the, I don't know, maybe 50-ish odd countries right. that aren't a part of it? Mm -hmm. uh, no, it's a good question. And, and, you know, the way that this investment was designed was that it allowed people to apply given their existing needs. So right now, as, as I mentioned, there were 146 countries that received vaccine doses um, from the facility. Um, however, you know, it continues to be um, an option if countries need, have new or ongoing, for example, cold chain needs, they could apply um, and basically ask for the type of support that they need. Um, and also to say that, you know, kind of taking a step back, um, there were also a lot of other donors that played a big role into this um, into this response. So countries also received a lot of support from some of the other donors and some of the other countries that wanted to give back and during this pandemic. So countries were also kind of trying to assess, you know, what are their needs and making sure that they, they design a support system that best fits their country and, and, and their priorities. So you're saying a little bit like this could be a fluctuating number, like some countries might not need it. Some countries might, you know, opt in at certain points. Um, and it's sort of it's both, you know, major donors as well as sort of countries building community between countries, if you will. Countries that are like, oh, you know, I have, I don't know, extra doses, extra money, extra maybe some cold chain infrastructure pieces that I'm willing to to donate, to share, or lend uh, during this time. Is that right? Right. Uh, and, and, you know, at the beginning, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, all the countries, I would say, um, you know, it doesn't matter if it was high income, low income, middle income, I think everybody was trying to figure out what, what is it going to look like, you know, in terms of the emergency response in the country and the priorities. Um, and obviously the demand was really, really high in terms of all the different components of the vaccine supply chain that countries might need. And obviously, you know, every country's needs have been evolving in terms of the coverage they've, they've had, in terms of um, just the work that they've been um, so successfully been able to do internally just to build an infrastructure around COVID-19 response. Definitely the needs have changed. 
Um, but COVAX has sort of kept it open in terms of, you know, if the, if the needs change and if uh, specifically with cold chain, you know, we're still receiving requests from countries where maybe initially they thought that they need these really big walk-in cold rooms, right? So you can imagine just, you know, as big of a room as you may be sitting in, um, these are like these, you know, insulated um, cold chain equipment. Um, and initially all the countries were just thinking about how are we going to handle like millions of doses of vaccines that are going to come into the country. So the, maybe the initial request was getting these huge walk-in cold rooms. But now as the needs have been evolving and now we are joint, a lot of countries are trying to maybe decentralize where these vaccines are stored. Maybe now they're thinking about their transport needs. Maybe they're thinking about actually training needs for, you know, the health workers that are now responsible to take these vaccines from the national to the communities. So, you know, Gavi wants to be really open and be observing about the, the evolving needs and, and make sure that countries have access to the type of support that they really need and taking into consideration that, you know, this was a pandemic. So we, any country could be really just be as ready as, as we, as they could be given, you know, what we knew. Um, so it has been definitely an interesting and um, lots of uh, interesting public health journey because we've all just been learning as a global community. It's, it's been definitely a very unique experience. I have a, so I have another question sort of related to that. So um, you mentioned a few different vaccines in addition to COVID-19. So was Gavi in place before? Okay, and COVAX is like the thing that came together for COVID-19 vaccines specifically? Exactly. So okay. COVAX was basically the vaccine's pillar of that ACT Accelerator I was mentioning. So ACT Accelerator was basically this global collaboration um, to ensure that there is a collaboration, there is production, equitable rollout of anything regarding COVID-19 response. So that being tests, treatments, and vaccines. Um, so basically Gavi, WHO, and CEPI um, became sort of the co-leads of COVAX um, pillar. And, and before that, Gavi has been playing a big role in immunizing, in helping and supporting the countries immunize um, children uh, against infectious diseases. And that being really all the routine immunizations that um, I'm sure most of us have also had, um, measles, polio, and, and, and you call it. Um, and to date, actually, Gavi has helped vaccinate more than 888 million children in the world uh, with some of the work that they were doing even before COVID. So that's all incredible work that you're doing. And I have a, another question um, about just some terminology you were using. Um, you use the phrase, you use the word donors and you use the word investment. And I'm curious, um, are those being used interchangeably here? Is it like investing, you know, invest in your community and then you expect dividends back in terms of just like the health of the community? Or is their investment like people actually expecting monetary dividends back from some of this? Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So when I was mentioning donors, I meant sort of the foundations and entities that um, allocate a certain fund. Um, or support towards an initiative. And when we talk about investments, um, especially with COVID, you know, it could be 
basically, you know, you, 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 you kind of can imagine a pot of money that, you know, was, was given to this initiative to ensure that all countries have access to equitable vaccines. But there are obviously so many different components and the one cold chain being one of them. And there was a certain amount of investment into cold chain alone to make sure that cold chain is not a bottleneck. So when I mention investment, it's, it's basically the funding that was allocated to a certain initiative. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, no, I'm so um, glad you brought that up. Yeah. And then I have another uh, terminology question, which is um, you use the phrase public health. So this is one of those phrases that I think a lot of people think they know what it means and might not actually know what it means. You know, lots of people might just think of public health as like, oh, lots of hospitals, right? But what is public health? All right. So public health, I would say public health is the science of protecting and improving the health, the health of people and their communities. So you can think about it as, you know, protecting the entire the health of the entire population. And the population can be as small as a local neighborhood, or it could be as big as an entire country, or as you can see, you know, the pandemic response that we globally went through. And the way that public health is implemented is that the work is really achieved by promoting healthy lifestyles. Um, and that includes researching disease and injury prevention, detecting and preventing infectious diseases, you know, again, just such as the COVID-19 response that, that was happening. And, and basically just being concerned with how can the entire population have access to resources um, really focusing on prevention, so making sure that we put a lot of effort into preventing these illnesses um, and not being reactive to when the when the community is sick or is dealing with a, a health challenge. So the focus of public health and what really drew me to public health and I love about public health is the focus on prevention and making sure that resources, education, environmental justice, research, representation, all of that really connects us as a community. So we are healthy and we have, um, we're really limiting the health disparities that are seen and that, that, that might be seen in different communities. Um, so a large part of public health is really around social justice and promoting healthcare equity, quality and accessibility, because we know that having access to resources and especially healthcare um, is, is an ongoing issue and challenge just globally for a lot of communities. So public health really tries to tackle that and, and, and think about social determinants of health and have a really comprehensive picture of what it takes for a person, a community, a country to be healthy and for everybody to have access to care. Thank you. I have another question, which is like, and this is going to be a little bit of a leading question, obviously. Um, but like, let's say I have the world's best healthcare, and I don't have any concerns in the world for my own health. Why should I still care about public health? Yeah, I mean, I'll actually, you know, give you an example, a, a current example. So uh, I'm sure I hope that most of us, if not all of us, have heard about the flooding that is happening in Pakistan, uh, where one third of the country is um, is covered um, with water and basically sanitation, healthcare, and 
and and so many you know as, aspects of health and livelihood is now in danger for a, a third of a country um and the disaster that has happened in pakistan is now called as a climate induced um emergency uh or you know sort, sort of a humanitarian crisis and while you can be living in your house, in your community, and have access to, to health and see yourself as a healthy individual. What, if, what we do um, as a global community really impacts the climate, the, the, the world, and the bigger community that we are a part of. Um, so when, you know, when disasters like this happen around the world, or even you know, close to home, like all the fires that, that that are happening because of all the heat waves that we have in, in even in California, it it all comes back to you and 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 your health and your and the quality of life that you live in. So you could have the best health care, but it's more than that. Public health is really more than just um, you know having a good insurance, having access to care. It's about thinking about health in a much bigger context in in our in defining quality of life of some something bigger right the impact that you have as an individual but also how that impact will come back to you because it is influencing um the earth and just how we are all co you know sort of co-living in this in this limited space with limited resources um so i would say you know we all need to be concerned um because it's you know, it's more than just our neighborhood and our community. Um, so public health does that by, um, you know, by looking through different determinants, right? Uh, so environmental, um, community health, global health, chronic and infectious diseases, um, universal health care, um, education, all of these components are what make all of us a truly healthy individual. So. So I would say that, you know, it, it's more than just having um, a great health insurance. Yeah, that's really all encompassing. I think um, at least my my idea of what public health was, it was definitely limited to uh, possibly body, like mm -hmm. physical, mm -hmm. <laughs> immediate right. physical health. Um, so that's that's a really expansive definition uh, that I hadn't considered before. And I think a lot of us that are in this space that are really considering you know, public benefit and global, uh, you know, how are we going to continue to not just survive, but thrive on this planet? And how can we make sure to not trash the planet along with that? Um, are really seeing, you know, everything really is intersectional. Um, you mentioned equity, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, climate change. You're talking about floods. i remember seeing an article about you know the this like floating iceberg that once it melts we're all going to be in trouble um you know all of these things really are are intersectional and it's not just you know um what or i should say if i could backtrack a little bit it is both something that's happening to you locally but also how you know our local decisions are uh, you know, city decisions, uh, country decisions, uh, you know, uh, scientific, technical, governmental, all of those decisions are, are really impacting everybody else. It's a super complex problem. 
uh, to consider. So that's that's fascinating. And Lynette, I'm so glad that you brought up the the term actually physical health because it reminded me that it, a big part of public health is also thinking about mental health and making sure that there's always an equal focus on mental health as well. Because to your point, I think a lot of us, you know, are wired to think about health as sort of a physical state. Um, but public health is really pushing boundaries on, you know, how we think about health and not just the community, but even as an individual and a community health, mental health is such a big part of it as well that I know that in the US we can give so much more attention and so much more funding to such a big problem that we have. And one of the one of the things that like Lynette and I talk about with folks when we're doing presentations is also just the effects that your mental health can have on your physical health as well. Mm-hmm. Right. They're so interconnected. You can separate them from each other. Uh, so I, I, you know, and I, we were talking about uh, public health, physical health, mental health, and um, just thinking about, you know, with um, in Colombia, for example, um, mental health is not something that anybody ever discusses. So I bet that's really interesting to navigate that conversation with people from so many different backgrounds and cultures some that do place a high value on on mental health and some that really don't or just haven't really considered it. Um, so that brings me to to my next uh, question. Uh, so bef- uh, before this podcast, we both uh, talked about uh, being immigrants and you mentioned that uh, that experience has affected how you think about public health and um, how you do what you do. Uh, so uh, can you tell us a little more about that? Of course. Um, so I moved to the U.S. when I was 14. Um, I was born in Tehran, Iran, and I, I moved at actually a very pivotal point, I think, in, in, a, in a person's development, which was, you know, being a teenager and, and moving to a new country and, you know, having to learn about just new culture and just everything that was just so different, um, you know, in terms of like coming from Iran, that was a very um, communal, you know, way of living and even like going to school, like smaller schools, everybody knew each other to, to sort of a, 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 I would call it like, at least where I was a very like individualistic, sort of everybody's thinking about their own group of friends and you kind of you know about you know, what affects you and, and, and your group. Um, it was such a shock for me. And, um, you know, I was lucky that I, I came with family, so I had my immediate social support um, and I was able to make some great friends at the beginning that, you know, kind of share this journey with me. Um, some of them were immigrants, you know, coming from different countries. So we kind of it was amazing to kind of learn about, you know, how their child what their challenges were, how you know their perspective was about, you know, kind of comparing the culture here versus in their own country. Um, but also, you know, having friends that also just moved from Iran or, or there were Iranian Americans. Um, it, it definitely exposed me to um, a lot of culture and a lot of different ways of thinking. Um, and it made me, uh, even though it was really hard, right, kind of thinking back, and I never knew that it was that hard until kind of mid, late 20s, I realized, you know, it's, Teenagers, first of all, are, are so resilient and they're so strong um, and they kind of try to, you know, power through things and adapt and, and then, you know, 
be who they are and be proud. So I, I didn't realize how hard it was as a teenager. You know, it's kind of like, oh, this is great. You know, I'll learn. I'll be fine. You know, I'll fit in. Um, but as I kind of navigated, you know, sort of both personal and career choices, um, I kind of saw how, you know, immigration really informed, you know, who I was and the decisions I was making in terms of the value and my values and the impact that I want to bring to the world. And basically the, the biggest impact for me as a professional has been always being an advocate for providing resources and making sure that every person, every community has equal access to the resources that they need in order to thrive. And those resources can be, you know, anywhere from education, from cultural centers to healthcare, because that made such a big difference for me. Um, it was, you know, when I when I moved as an immigrant, it wasn't just, um, you know, one need. It was it was a, I, I needed to be connected with resources, with the community and really feel that sense of belonging. So. I think one of the reasons that I actually chose public health and especially global health was that it was because I, I kind of started believing in this borderless and sort of a communal way of thinking and connecting. Um, it, it really helped me to always um, find myself, you know, whenever, whenever I would find myself in like different situation, difficult situation, I would always ask, you know, what is my value and how's, how, can that, how can that drive me? So when I was at Nexif, you know, learning and traveling and working with ministries of health, I constantly had this question of, you know, what are my assumptions? What can I contribute? But what can I also learn? And how can I test my assumptions? So it made me a very flexible person, which I would say was such a great strength. Um, and, but also one of the hard things was that, you know, I was always kind of like feeling like I need to do so much or I need to always find that belonging, right? You know, that sense of belonging that I always missed as a teenager. Um, and, you know, I was always looking for that, right? With traveling, with connecting, with making personal and professional connections. Um, I, I soon realized that, wow, you know, I'm still holding on to this like feel and need of, you know, like, where do I belong? You know, who am I? And um, even though, you know, it was initially seen as a weakness, um, actually my, my career coach really pushed me to think of it as a strength because she said, you know, this is actually why you are here today. And this is why you can, you know, make a different contribution to global health because you bring in this different perspective and you just know how important it is um, to have access to resources. And you always, you know, bring in a bigger picture, you know, to the table and you want to make sure that everybody has that sense of belonging, you know, in a conversation when a decision is being made, um, you know, you engage the country, you, you want to make sure that you're co-designing that tech, that product, you know, you want to, you want to challenge yourself all the time and, and, and see where you're wrong and where you can learn. So it's actually a good thing. Um, and, you know, it took me a while to, 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 to kind of realize that and be like, okay, yeah, right. Yeah. That is a good thing actually. Um, and, you know, I talk about that a lot, you know, with my circle, with, you know, some of the mentees I've had, you know, through UCLA where, you know, I, I try to continue, you know, be engaged with the MPH program at UCLA because I had such amazing mentors when I was just getting into this field that I think it's so important to, you know, let the new generation know about, you know, 
what to expect, where your values should be, and how some of your strengths as an immigrant can really make an impact and, and, and just you know, be so valuable to, to the rest of the community. I think that's so important um, to have diversity in voices, really in all fields. I mean, that's kind of the whole deal with, with what we do in the podcast. Um, but you can see how critical that is when we're talking about, you know, working with multiple different countries that have very diverse communities with very different needs um, that, you know, co-creating, having them in on the conversation, having them be comfortable enough to speak up. I, those are all really, really critical things. And, you know, you, you mentioned as you started to, in the field, you had really great mentors. Um, now that immunization has like a billion percent exploded, <laughs> Um, into national discourse and so many more people I think are probably interested in in thinking about public health and immunization um, what has that been like to see that explosion you know what is your impression what's your take um, on this phenomenon yeah so I think you know I, I would just share a funny story actually even within my family you know they they always had such a hard time <laughs> you know relating to what i do um my brother you know used to make jokes like oh you know my fridge is not working can you come fix it you know like they they had such a <laughs> they just didn't know you know what cold chain is and what supply chain is and and i think when covid happened you know so many people including my own family just learned about you know the the complexity of delivering healthcare and immunization, you know, being, being, being so important during the pandemic. Um, but also just this knowledge that, you know, we all had as a global community because it was affecting all of us, right? Um, it was so close to home and we all learned, you know, what it takes to respond to something so unknown. Um, but also how, you know, public health is, is, is such an important, um, such an important, I would say, you know, topic for all of us to just know about, about how it relates to us individually, but also again, as a, as a local community, as a global uh, community. Um, so it's been, it has been really great, I think, to see that change and that shift. Um, because again, you know, kind of linking it to an earlier conversation, we're also just seeing more impact of, of climate um, changes in, in, in health and into just you know public health and global health so it's i i really hope that we kind of continue on this momentum and this global conversation of how interconnected we are as a community and how we should be really more proactive um and one thing i would say that maybe COVID has taught us and i hope it has, it has really taught us this lesson is that it's so important to invest in health infrastructure because when pandemics and when you know these um, sort of climate-related um, disasters happen, there's no time to plan. Uh, you just need to respond. And if you, don't, if you don't have this strong health infrastructure in place, if everybody doesn't have access to equal and equitable health care, then we have a problem. Um, so really, I hope that, you know, we kind of use this momentum to to invest in education and in health infrastructure, 
um, not just for sort of a daily needs that we have all as individuals to have access to mental and physical health resources, but also, you know, as we are just becoming a bigger community and, and, and some of these pandemics and, and, you know, humanitarian disasters that are happening are just affecting all of us more and more. I, I feel like I have just received a very like concrete lesson in that whole infrastructure topic that you were talking about in terms of like, for instance, um, I a few weeks ago got my monkeypox first uh, vaccine first dose and I'm actually getting my second this Saturday. So by the time that listeners hear this, I will have gotten both doses. And when I went in, I found out that the reason that they're doing the vaccinations on Saturdays and one other day at that particular site is because it's already set up as a COVID site. And so they're just piggybacking on this pre-existing infrastructure um, to also, also do the monkeypox vaccines. And I think that's interesting. And like, what if we had just, you know, actually had all this infrastructure to begin with? It's so true because, um, I mean, even when I was at, you know, UCLA studying all these, you know, theories and what could happen, it's not that, you know, scientists and public health professionals didn't know that this was going to come, right? Like, I think everybody knew that there will be, you know, sort of these global pandemics that are going to affect us. Uh, so we all sort of saw that coming, just like, you know, with climate change, how we all know that, you know, we're just going to see more disasters happening. But, you know, to your point, Alexis, it is really about, I think, embracing this fact and saying, hey, we need to do something starting today. We need to do that today because it's just going to serve us, you know, forever. So why not invest in this today? That was a slight burn. <laughs> CDC. Need <laughs> 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 some burn cream for that one, for sure. <laughs> well said, though. Well said. Yeah. And I'll give another like global, amazing global example. So, so Rwanda as a country has been so sort of has been sort of a leader, I would call, in terms of really investing in the infrastructure uh, of the health system in the country, and and they. You know, Alexis, again, to your point about, you know, having that infrastructure in place because Rwanda had such a great system to respond to Ebola earlier on. They had they basically just transitioned over all of that lessons learned, best practices from the Ebola response to COVID response. And they were able to control that so effectively. And it was just amazing to watch from here. I, I had such a great time just seeing how they just controlled it and they just like basically used what worked before and you know, there was no stress. So like, okay, we got this because we've done this before and we have trainings in place. We know how to do this. And, you know, why not? Like, why not? We should, we should really be, you know, modeling that as an example. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think the U.S. can learn so much more, right, from other countries. Um, I think we should be really open to just looking at other health systems that are working and how investments that a lot of countries have made into education and workforce development is, is really paying back for those countries and really prioritizing that in our country. Shifting topics just a little bit. Um, Sharzad, you have worked in both tech and nonprofit, right? Um, so I'm curious because part of Lynette and my job is like talking a lot from a nonprofit 
consulting perspective with tech con- companies who are in a tension between making money and serving their customers and taking care of their own employees. Um, have you noticed any particular tensions between tech and nonprofits in the field of public health? So tech is definitely, I mean, has been for many years kind of coming into how we think about healthcare and just, you know, healthcare services, you know, from, from designing and scaling products to apps, you know, you call it, even a lot of the health education now is done, you know, through tech. So the world is, you know, has definitely changed. We're all in, in all aspects of life, you know, tech has become such a, a big, is, is playing such a big role. So there, there's no denying that. Um, but I think what has been tension slash, you know, areas to learn and just keep thinking about in health, in the intersection of health and tech has been kind of the, the I would say the intention and the, and the goal of designing and scaling and selling products that are to promote a healthier lifestyle or healthier communities. Um, so I've seen tensions where, um, you know, at the country level or global level, you know, if, if tech companies are making assumptions about what countries want and need, um, or if they're not building these uh, tech with the communities, um, making sure that, you know, the community's language, digital readiness, um, you know, how they think about data access, data confidentiality, and data sovereignty, right? Thinking about all of those, if, if you choose to ignore that and just assume that you know all the answers and you know what a solution would look like, um, and you hold back from learning about the problem first, engaging the community and the user, you're going to get a lot of tension. And, and your product is also not going to sustain long term and it's not going to, it's not going to be helpful. Um, and, you know, as someone who has designed tech and scaled tech, I spend a lot of time just observing, you know, in different countries, how people look at products um, and, you know, the feedback they give, even, you know, just saying as, 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 as small as it sounds like, you know, this is too loud, you know, in the health facility, people are not going to like this. Um, and it's something that we didn't think about because we're not a nurse um, and nurses know, you know, how they can build a friendly and comfortable environment for their patient. So from that level of feedback to saying, hey, you know, as, as a ministry of health, wait, where's my data going? Like, who has access to this? And why is not my data being hosted in my own country? I, I could build the infrastructure to have that. You know, is that an option? And kind of challenging the business models of some of these tech companies. Um, and, and again, it's, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of components when you think about designing and scaling, um, innovations in health, um, and co-designing is definitely one part of it, but thinking through scalability, sustainability, the financial model, making sure that users have the agency, um, to, to basically not, again, not just design it, but. But, but to say, you know, what they want, like how they want the financial model to be, because if you really want to come and have the impact that you, you know, you want to have as a basically a for-profit or a tech company, you really want to think about, you know, values and, and what's really the intention behind that tech you're, you're building. 
Um, and you have to be very open about changing your business model, the design and the customization of the product. So it really serves the people. Um, and they have the agency to say what they don't like, what they want, um, what they want to own, that being, you know, the data, the scalability, um, and what they want to pay you for. So you can support them, you know, manage the system. And I think that is the bigger conversation that we all need to have now in global health and in public health as tech is becoming more and more integrated into healthcare, we need to have these bigger conversations and make sure that we think about ownership a lot more than we do now. Because, you know, you could invest so much in a project, you could scale it, you can have it in all the health facilities, you know, there's a donor paying for it, and then the funding ends, and then everything stops working. <laughs> and no one thought about, you know, the long-term implication of the cause, and then it was just a waste of time and resources. And, you know, to me as an implementer, I think the biggest pain point for me was that we didn't think about people's time and energy and we didn't respect, you know, the, 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 the nurse's time and everyone who was involved in this project because we didn't think through, you know, the long-term implication. So it is really our responsibility and it is our fault when things are not working because as implementers, we are the responsible party to think about, you know, how before piloting, before scaling it, how's this going to look like in five years, 10 years? And am I ready to have an exit strategy as, as an implementer and say, hey, at some point, this is all your project, right? This is for your country and you can take it and, and manage it on your own and you shouldn't really need me anymore um, because then you're creating this unhealthy power dynamic where the country will always need you. And again, if you're really, if you have a, a good intention of, of supporting the community with a need, you shouldn't make them codependent. Um, so they have to be in charge of the, that, that technology and be able to own it. I just had this like awful image of like what Apple or Microsoft or Adobe would do if they were like, well, you know, we keep updating the, the software and make you dependent on us. Like that is, huh, that's terrifying well, in terms of big, public big health. Books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that is real. That is really real. Um, and I think that, uh, that theme of responsibility and intention, like really going deep into what, what an intention is and where it lies and what you actually want as an effect, I think is really important, which we're going to put just a tiny, tiny pause in so we can go to break. Hi, everyone. This is Seth, and I'm the audio editor here at UBP. I wanted to let you know that you can check out our guest website and learn more in the description section of your podcast or on our website. Also, podcasting is just one branch of what we do at UBP. Find out how UBP can work with you and your organization to grow inclusion and support diversity by visiting our website, ubpproject.org. All right. Those are our lovely messages. Um, we're back with Sharzad. Um, we just talked about um, responsibility when you are engaging in new programs, initiatives, tech, whatever it is, 
um, in public health, how to balance that responsibility with the intention. And um, in our little meeting before we started the podcast, um, you mentioned that you've worked in the US, Asia, and Africa, and I'm sure many more places you'll be working with soon. So in our work, we at UBP talk sometimes about the white savior complex and people really having good intentions of doing the good, right? <laughs> but they just sort of swoop in and they're like, I am, you know, superhero here. And this is what makes sense to me, you know, just like you said earlier, which might not be the best move. So I'm curious about um, what are some of the common pitfalls or unintended consequences that you've seen when Americans or Europeans, and this can be, you know, foundations, companies, donors, investors, and so on that we mentioned earlier, try to just, you know, swoop in and be like, I'm going to help you for the same overexploited countries that were previously colonized. What have you seen? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I kind of, uh, you know, I, I really like this question because it, it brings us back to a, to a couple of things that we talked about earlier. And, and one of them were, you know, just the, the earlier question you asked um, around kind of even just tech coming in and, and you know, how would that look like? I, I would kind of say, you know, it's all this bigger question of when someone that being a donor, being an implementer, a partner, a, a, just a community member wanting to, to give back, asking this question uh, from yourself, you know, what is my intention? Um, Am I solving a problem that already exists? Or do I have this idea that I love and the solution that I have? And I'm just going to go and create a problem just so I can implement my solution or just so I can you know, feel great about helping. Because, um, you know, this was actually, you know, coming from my personal journey and just either being as an intern when I was studying, being professional, being in the field. I think a lot of times, you know, you could have a really good intention and but you become so, or you feel so personally responsible for solving that problem that you don't even take a step back and say, hey, am I taking the agency away from the community that I'm helping? Am I not allowing them to tell me, you know, well, maybe my problem has changed or, you know, this problem you're trying to solve is actually not on, on our priority list. You know, it's great to have, um, I don't know, access to electronic copies of you know the health education materials you're 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 building us but i actually have you know a huge challenge maybe with my water um quality and you know kind of taking that that approach of taking a step back and saying if i really have the intention of helping my community or another community engaging the community and asking them hey this skills that i have this intention i have is it serving what is on your mind or was it a problem of yesterday and I'm still cre creating solutions for a problem that no longer exists, but I'm just so attached to it and I'm such an expert in it that I just want to keep doing what I like to do. Um, so I think that is really the biggest um, question that we should all be asking, regardless of the, the type of hat we're, you were wearing, you know, making a one-time donation versus, you know, choosing a career in, in social impact or, or becoming very powerful with, you know, just the, the, the experience we have or the, the type of funding we want to give, you know, however you want to call that power, being knowledge or being money or being, you know, just the, 
the, the, the many years that you've spent in the, in the sector, being open to, to questioning yourself and asking those hard questions, you know, what are my assumptions and, and how can I make sure that in whatever that I do, I'm actually giving more agency to those individuals and in increasing their capacity, their resources, so they have the power um, and the resources that they need to fulfill their potential. Um, and one example I would say, kind of going back to Rwanda, um, the country investing in education and workforce has really given back um, to the community. So it has really informed the priorities of the countries, but it has also really shifted the way that partners and donors also work with the Rwanda Ministry of Health. So one example is actually the University of um, Global Health Equity, which has been sort of a collaboration um, between Partners in Health and, and some of the other organizations involved. Um, and it's a new university based in Rwanda that is basically building the next generation of global health professionals. So that being doctors, nurses, researchers, and public health and policy experts, they're building that capacity of knowledge within the country, which I think is so powerful. Um, and if we go with that model, you know, back to your question on, you know, how, how can we play a role where, you know, it's, it's equitable, it's welcomed, it's appreciated, and it's wanted, um, we have to be thinking about, you know, what are the community's needs now and long-term, and what can, again, improve that infrastructure? Because if we don't invest in the long-term impact, everything is just going to be very short-term and it will just fall apart. Um, and while there are, you know, don't get me wrong, there are some, you know, situations like, for example, when, you know, some disasters happen, you know, you do need to reach out to communities and help them with basic needs, right? You know, they have, they need access to water, food, when, you know, such, such humanitarian disasters happen. But even, you know, in those situations, um, kind of coming back to what Alexis was saying earlier, if you have a strong infrastructure in place, you know, for sanitation, for water, education, healthcare, you will not be so dependent, you know, right, and on, on outside aid and, and other partners. Um, so if we all shift our individual, our organization, our, our collective efforts to to think long-term, to invest in the capacity and infrastructure of countries or communities that we help, we're really going to move the needle in, in what we want to see in the long-term. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I hear multiple things like considering priorities, considering strategy, considering actual needs. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, we see in our work, you know, very different, um, not nearly as far reaching impacts as working on global public health. <clears throat> but when we're working with organizations, one of the things that we try to assess is, is there a like literal fire that's going on that needs to be put out first that should take priority over, you know, a workshop on diversity, equity, inclusion? Um, is there, you know, are there some real issues of trust that need to be addressed first? You know, what is going on and does this really make sense in this moment? Um, I think that's that's really important. And especially when it comes to, to issues of public health. And, and like you said, there are some some instances where like immediate needs are always, you know, immediate basic needs are what needs to always be addressed first in like a, a huge natural um, 
disaster. Um, but for example, bringing up the flooding that you brought up earlier, you know, maybe having, uh, you know, temporary structures isn't as important as maybe having some sort of floating structures, right? Like <laughs> the kind of thing that, that might be needed it could be very, very different. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I like that. I really like that you actually brought up the topic of trust. Um, cause I do think, you know, with, with all of these sort of partnership dynamics, you always want to think about, uh, trust as the foundation and, and being open to, um, own, you know, your, your role, your responsibility when you actually do make an impact and when you unintentionally actually create more problems and pivot um, and make sure that, you know, there's a healthy dynamic always, you know, between the person who's helping and the person who's receiving the help. Um, And it's this equal uh, nurturing partnership. Um, And I think if we have that in mind, you know, we can always, you know, do our best to, to, to make the impact that we really want to make. Um, and, and I don't think it hurts to ask, you know, is, is what I'm doing, you know, spending a time, um, an hour, you know, volunteering or spending my lifetime, you know, dedicated to a cause, is that helping your community? You know, do you want me to pivot or do you want me to work on policy more? Um, you know, do we need to shift our, um, individual efforts to just make sure that, you know, we're thinking about, you know, voting more at the state and local level because it all directly impacts the social determinants of health, right? At the state and local government, there are a lot of decisions that are made around, you know, transportation, education, land use, like all of those that all kind of come back to resources and and public health. So, you know, also redefining our role and making sure that we're thinking more broadly. Um, Just, you know, as we we were talking about, you know, climate change and environmental justice, um, you know, also making sure that we are thinking more diverse in terms of our support. Um, and every person, right, I think when we, when we want to support and give back, it becomes so personal. So I think it's so beautiful that, you know, everybody, depending on their values, their experience, um, choose a cause and they're committed to it and they, you know, they, they give it their all, either being their time or financial investment, both equally valuable. But it's so important to have like a di- diverse, you know, set of focuses as a community. So everybody is, you know, thinking more broadly. Um, and, and after COVID-19, you know, the poverty and uh, economic stability became such a big topic that, again, affects, affects us all. So thinking about that, you know, when we think about the uh, pandemic and just response, um, I, I can't, you know, say education enough. I think education is such an important um topic all the time and it just opens so many doors to um to access and quality of life that we want for for our communities i think that's so important and um at the top of the podcast you mentioned um how um when public health isn't able to prevent isn't able to meet needs um uh, you know, and thinking about the populations that you mostly work with, with children, um, how much education suffers. I think we're starting to see a lot of reports, um, you know, even here in the U.S., a country that's considered to have a lot of resources, just the level of negative impact um, the pandemic has had on education. 
And we're seeing as a nation how important education has been, still is, and will be in order to to deal with issues of, of public health, in order to to work um, and build community and build trust um, across multiple sectors. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's really interesting. Um, Wow, this is uh, incredible and all-encompassing. And um, like Alexis and I, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking like, oh my gosh, there are so many pitfalls. There's so many things I could do. I just wanted to give us a quick recap on some of what I heard. And maybe you can add in anything that I missed. Um, But there are all sorts of ways in which we can help contribute to public health, whether it's local, national, or global um, you talked about voting, you talked about donating, you talked about, uh, you know, if you're part of an organization that's involved in public health, really work with the communities that you're trying to serve, um, considering, you know, what is the sustainability of a program. So if you're in a position of, of leadership or advocacy, um, thinking about the long-term impacts, uh, sustainability of a service, a program, or a tool um, years and years after the fact. Um, oh, and I can't believe um, I almost forgot to say education, mental health, uh, considering uh, partnerships and equity, um, you know, really looking at that that trust piece that's really important, building those relationships, not just in emergencies, but in the now. And absolutely going back to a piece that we've touched on a couple of times, um, climate change and thinking about our global responsibility to, you know, how we are purchasing, how we're using and how we're supporting or not supporting, um, you know, improvements for, you know, a greener, uh, more sustainable world in the long term for everybody. Thanks for that recap, Lynette. Um, So as we uh, as we wrap up, um, our last section is always shout outs. So we always ask our guests, um, do you have any resources that you want to plug for our listeners today or people to thank or um, causes or organizations that you want to promote or amplify? Um, Or is there anything else that you're doing that we should keep an eye out for? Yes, happy to. So I actually want to give a shout out uh, to my mom and dad. I think the the older I'm getting, I'm just realizing how much they have done um, for me and my family, especially, you know, leaving their country and going through the hard immigration journey just so we have access to better education and resources. Um, so shout out to my parents who have really taken the, the biggest risks and um, giving me the opportunity to to make the impact that I'm making today. It, it's really because of them. So. So thank you, mom and dad. Um, and also another shout out to all the mentors and um, great managers that I've had over the years who uh, believed in my strength and, and really pushed me out of my comfort zone um, and um, just, just made me realize that you can always think differently. You can always ask a lot of questions <laughs> from yourself and from others just so you change the status quo. Um, so again, forever grateful to all the mentors that, that I've had. Oh, that's really beautiful. 
that, that's another way that you can help for public health mentor. Yes. <laughs> mentor, educate, <laughs> yes, or promote, um, and share. Oh my gosh, please share this podcast. Please share how important public health and equity and climate change and all of these different components are with somebody. It can be a conversation or sharing the link. Um, but this has been amazing. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Of course. And and um, to your question about resources, I mean, there are a couple of books that I really love and it really touches upon, upon what we talked about today. Um, so the first, the first one is called um, Pathologies um, of Power. That's by Dr. Paul Farmer. The second one is called Winners Take All, um, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It touches a lot upon um, what we talked about around the the powerful and the healthy wanting to make an impact and just kind of the bigger question we have around, um, you know, how do we make sure that we're really making the change, um, either being a tech company or, you know, being a donor and such. Um, and then the first book that I mentioned, The Pathologies of Power, um, I just love that book uh, because it, as a public health professional, it was actually one of the very first books that I read um, and it really challenged me to think about public health as a as sort of a social justice and movement uh, to to really think about human rights in the context of global public health um, and to believe that every human life um, is is equal and whenever you're making tough decisions and whatever cause you're involved in always making sure that you put the community at the heart of it so I, I really love that book, uh, Pathologies of Power. Um, and then I think as a professional, uh, again, as an immigrant, kind of going back to, you know, sort of my journey into young adulthood and then getting into public health, um, there was a book that I read actually in my early 20s called Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can, Ma Why it can Matter More Than IQ. Um, and the book really helped me in navigating just the complexity of life you know, just as a human, but also in, in a lot of complex situations when I was practicing public health, either in the U.S. or internationally, um, just really understanding the context of the problem, where you add your values and going back to that emotional intelligence. Um, I just really, it, it's a, it was a really great book to read and, and, and kind of interpret it on your own and based on your own experience. Um, and I love poetry, so I would say um, read a lot of poetry from Rumi, <laughs> who is a famous Persian poet, um, and he just has just great poetry, and it really just makes you think differently. And it doesn't matter what you do and who you are and what impact you want to make in the world, Rumi just brings another lens into being a human. Nice. Thank you. Thank you so much for all those resources. We definitely have a lot to check out, and so do our uh, listeners. Fantastic. Of course, my pleasure. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was really fun chatting with you both. And um, yeah, and I hope that, um, yeah, whoever is listening to this podcast um, learned something. And I hope that um, they can share and uh, also bring maybe different questions and perspective to the podcast. I would love to hear, you know, what the community thinks about this episode and uh, I hope to keep in touch. Awesome. Oh, yeah. We hope so idea. too.
I love that idea. Um, let's get some of our listeners on this pod to tell us about the impact of the pod. I'm down with that. I'm down with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sherzad. Hi, Alexis again with just one last ask. Do you love the podcast? Of course you do. You're listening to the outro after all. One of the best things you can do to support us is tell your friends. Ask them if you can look something up on their phone, then secretly sneak into their podcast app. Find us and click subscribe. Or, you know, you can tell them about it the normal way too. Either or, your pick. We trust you. Tell your friends. 